Alrighty. You know, if I was really taking advantage of the time when Earl's setting things up, I would actually read the notes that I write, because usually I get going and I don't even think to look at them. So I have notes, and every once in a while I use them. But um, anyways, let's pray. Dear God, we are, uh, we're blessed to be able to be here tonight, and we just pray that, that you would be blessed um, right now, that you'd be glorified as we uh, open up your word and give it honor. We pray that you would speak to each of us, that you would work in our lives, work in our hearts, and uh, just have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so Wednesday nights, we are doing a recap of a point that we've covered in reading through the Bible as a church, right? And we'll keep saying it. If you don't have the reading program, it's on the back table. And today's, whatever today is, May 26th. Uh, so pick one up. Start tomorrow morning on May 27th and, and watch the Word of God transform your life. Um, uh, just a little bit of a heads up. So basically what we've been doing is reading... You take on Wednesdays, we take a chapter from what we read the past week. Um, but in trying to be at least reasonably thought out, I was looking ahead and realized that in two weeks, the reading is going to be all in the book of Job and the hard part of the book of Job, right? And um, so I'm probably going to change around a little bit what we teach over the next couple weeks. It'll still be through the Bible, but we might, uh, next week might overlap a little bit with some of this week's reading, and we'll just kind of see how it goes. But um, be that as it may, this week uh, saw us wrapping up Second Chronicles, coming into the book of Ezra, and then coming into the book of Nehemiah. Next week, we're going to wrap up the book of Nehemiah. We'll go through the whole book of Esther, and then we'll start the book of Job. And um, really, these are some of I think the greatest uh, books of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah specifically, but Esther also. And really there's a couple things we should just keep in mind in a big picture overview. Okay, these are some of the last books to be written in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple others that are towards the end. Uh, Malachi is later, but these are after Isaiah, they're after Jeremiah. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra are probably after Daniel. Um, so there's just, there's, a, there's kind of a, a sense of we're, we're kind of finishing a story here. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Uh, but also they all, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they all kind of run together. And I think they're put, in, they're put back to back in order. I don't know that the authors were trying to do that, but the way the Lord structured the Bible, we get to see um, kind of how did Israel come out of captivity, right? And we've covered again, historically, there was the nation of Israel, they went into the promised land, and then they divided into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel was eventually carried away captive by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was carried away captive by the Babylonians a little bit after. And uh, from this point on, anytime we talk about the nation of Israel, we're really still talking about that nation of Judah because the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel, um, in a lot of ways, uh, was more or less lost. Uh, a lot of the cultural identity was lost. And so overall, so as we're watching the, the tribe of Judah or the nation, what's now going to be referred to as the nation of Israel, come out of that Babylonian captivity, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are going to give us kind of three different perspectives of the same overall story. So Ezra is going to be a little bit about um, the spiritual side of restoring 
of coming back from captivity. Nehemiah is about the spiritual side, but it's also about the practical side. If here's the projects they had to get done. Esther is about the, um, the protection side. Right? Here's how uh, God was working in a much bigger picture to orchestrate events beyond what anybody could foresee to keep the nation of Israel alive. Right? And so they're all connected, and they're all separate, but they're all connected. So just as we're going through that this week, I don't want us to lose sight of that. All right? um, but tonight we're going to mostly focus in on the book of Ezra, and we'll jump around a little bit, and then we'll settle down in just a bit. But if you open up to the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. And in the very opening of the book of Ezra, it says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. And then it, it goes on, and it basically, the Lord stirs up the heart of Cyrus, and Cyrus, the Persian king, because... History gets a little complicated, but Babylonians conquered Judah, and then the Persians conquered Babylon, which means that now Persia is in control of Judah, right, or of Israel. So Persia is now the world leader, and the Lord stirs up this guy Cyrus to let everybody go back. He says, you can go back to the land that you were captured from. You can go back to your homeland. You have my blessing. Here's the treasure we took from you. Here is, uh, you know, documents to tell anybody who owns, you know, the king's land. that They can give you my timber. They can give you my money. Basically, here's my credit card, and let me know if you have any problems. Right? But why did he do that? So as, we're, as you get in the book of Ezra, Ezra is hitting us with this right off the bat. Why is Cyrus doing this? Why is the Lord stirring up Cyrus to do this? Because the Lord is going to fulfill his word that he spoke through Jeremiah. And if there's one thing we should look at when we look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, it's that the Lord always fulfills his word. The Lord's word will always come to pass. The Lord's word will always fulfill what it sets out to accomplish. Right? The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. And so God will defend his word. And so God had prophesied through Jeremiah that you will be in captivity for 70 years. And after 70 years, I will bring you out of captivity and back to your homeland, right? And so God is going to fulfill his word. So as we're looking at Ezra, and as we're looking at the story of what is God doing here in the nation of Israel at this time, the first and most important thing that he's doing is he's fulfilling his word. He's keeping his word, right? He is staying faithful to who he is. Right? And that's important because we're talking about captivity. We're talking about a changing global landscape where Babylon was the world power. Uh, then Persia is the world power. In the next generation or two, Greece will become the world power. And then Rome's going to become the world power. Right? So there's a lot of moving dynamics here. But there's a couple, but there's a constant. Right? And that is that the Lord is still the Lord. And which is great because in our world today, there are some things that we could call moving variables, right? Um, there just are, right? Uh, we have no idea. Nobody, nobody knows anything about what's going on, right? And the super spiritual people try and tell us that they know what God is thinking because God will, of course, operate this way. But really, all we can say for sure is that God is going to be faithful, right? God will still be God. God will fulfill things his way and his timing. And other than that, we're good, 
right? But Ezra opens up with that. He wants us to capture right off the bat that God will fulfill his word. And he'll fulfill his word even if it doesn't feel like it, okay? Because you think about this. These Israelites have now been in captivity for 70 years, right? That's a long time. There are not too many of us in this room right now who can lay claim to having 70 years of experience, right? I'm, I'm trying very hard to avoid all eye contact at a couple people. But there are, 70 years is, is a pretty decent stretch, right? And so, you know, how many people, how many Israelites now have never seen their homeland, right? Captivity is all they've known. But there's been this promise of, well, God's going to come back and fulfill his word. Well, do you think it feels like God's going to fulfill his word at that point? After seven decades, right? What's the longest you've ever waited for something? Something that you really wanted, right? What, a month? A year? Five years? Right? I mean, there's, you know, there's things I've been kind of hoping would happen uh, for 10 years now that haven't happened. After 10 years, you just kind of like, well, I'll keep, keep praying about that situation. Hope that person, you know, comes back to the Lord or whatever. But it's been 10 years, Right? And after 10 years, you know, that's, it's like, uh, I don't know, maybe God's going to, you know, maybe he'll come through. But we're talking about seven decades. It didn't feel like God was coming through for his word right here, right? But God is. God is coming through for his word because the Lord loves to come through for his word. So that's chapter one. That's first one. Now we're going to jump to chapter two. And we're not going to actually read it because it's a lot of names and numbers. But Ezra then takes a census of, okay, who's coming back? All right, so we've got the king's permission to come back. We can move back. Who's coming? Right? And he gives us the list by family. And he's not generalizing here. All right? The sons of Parash, all 2,172 of them. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath, Moab. Of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. Right? This is a numbers guy writing this book right here, right? This is a math guy who says, okay, I'm going to put it down, and I'm going to make sure that we get this right. Okay? Now, for as good as he did, there's some stuff in the translation where it's still hard for some of us to track exactly how many people and how did the numbers all line up. Okay? But be that as it may... Roughly 50,000 people make this migration back. And that's really interesting because that's not how many people went into captivity, right? If you look at the numbers, the censuses, the sensei, the whatever they were, the counting of people that happened uh, before Israel was carried into captivity, there's a lot more than 50,000 people there, right? So where are they? Right? They, all, they got carried away captive, but they're not all coming back. And I was really thinking about this this week. When we read through the books of Joshua and the books of Judges, we talk a lot about how um, they're types for, you know, they're types in the Old Testament for spiritual applications in the New Testament. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. And so we can talk about, you know, Joshua crossing into the promised land is very similar to us walking into a victorious Christian life, right? And, and there's still struggles, there's still challenges, there will sometimes be, uh, you know, we'll sometimes stumble, just like Joshua did, but there's still victory, Right? There's, still, uh, there's still success. There is a fresh relationship with the Lord that happens in that context. Right, That's a victorious Christian life. 
And when we look at the book of Judges, we look at people in the promised land not walking according to the word of the Lord. And we talk about how that's a great metaphor, a great type of how to live a defeated Christian life. And so as I was thinking through this and, and praying through this, if we're going to be consistent with that, and I don't want to call it a metaphor because metaphor kind of reduces the power of it, and it's the word of God. So I don't want to call it a metaphor, but if we're going to be consistent with that type or that imagery, then as we're looking at the book of Ezra, we should say the same thing. So if the promised land is symbolic of a victorious Christian life, then Ezra says, who's coming with me? And not everybody comes, right? Now bear in mind, the people were carried away for their sins. They were carried into captivity because of their sins. Now, it wasn't necessarily every person fully deserved that level of captivity, right? But they all got taken, okay? Some people had been sinning to different levels. There were some righteous people who got carried into captivity too, right? We have Daniel and his three friends as an example of that. So a lot of people got carried because sin impacts a lot of people. But notice what happens here, and that is that in life, okay, we can sometimes get taken out of victorious Christian living. And sometimes that's because we're sinning, right? Sometimes it's because we're just being stupid. Sometimes it's because we're being lazy. And sometimes it's just because life happens, right? Sometimes life is just hard. And it is, you know, there are challenges that people go through that are real, that are just, you know, that you listen to them and you think, I have nothing to complain about, right? There are challenges that people go through that can take us out of that victorious life. But here's the thing. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord's going to fulfill his word, right? The Lord is going to always keep that invitation open to go back to the victorious Christian life. There is always an opportunity, especially for us today, who have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us, okay? Circumstances may have happened. Sin may have happened. Compromise may have happened. Uh, just, you know, life or laziness or whatever may have happened, and we may find ourselves in Babylon or in Persia. But that does not take away from the fact that we now have full access. We have the full invitation to go back to that victorious Christian life. And that is the great opportunity. The great tragedy is that a lot of people just never do, right? I mean, you know people, I know people who can talk about, oh, back in the day, right? When I was serving the Lord with this person or in this location and we were doing this kind of a ministry and we were reaching these kinds of people and it's all past tense verbs, right? They always talk about what I was doing, what we were doing, where we were at, and they never can tell me where they are, right? They can never say, here's what God is saying to me this week in his word. Right? They never talk about present tense. They're never looking forward to where, what does God want to do. They're stuck. Right? And it's like that door's open, but man, they'd have to, they'd have to, they'd have to go back. Right? I mean, you're, you've been in captivity for 70 years. Right? You know your neighbors. You know your neighbor's kids. Your kids are probably married to your neighbor's kids, right? You've got a business now. You've got, you know, life's, it's, it's stable, right? It might not be victorious Christian living, but there's some stability here, right? I, I kind of, you know, I know where things go. I've got a little bit of elbow room. I can do this. I can, I can track with this, right? But victorious Christian living is open to all of us. So it doesn't matter tonight where we find ourselves, 
right? Each one of us, no matter where we are, where we've been, right? No matter what's going on situationally in our lives, we all have that opportunity to say, you know what? I want to be in that group of people who's heading back to the promised land. I want to be choosing to engage in the victorious Christian life because I want to walk in victory, okay? So that's what happens in chapter two. Chapters three, four, five, and six. Uh, Don't get worried. I'm not going to read them all. Um, Chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, the people come back. They start to rebuild the temple. They find opposition from some of the non-Jewish people who have now kind of moved into the neighborhood, okay? And it winds up dragging out into like 20-year-long opposition where there's this whole big dialogue between the, you know, the Jewish people and these other people here. And then by this point, uh, the king of Persia has died, and so now there's the new guy, and he doesn't re- remember the law correctly, and so there's this whole convoluted thing going on where they have to stop building the temple for a while, and then they get lazy back in the victorious Christian life. Can you imagine somebody walking victoriously and then getting lazy? Yes, I can, um, because I do it all the time. But they have this thing, and then prophets come, and it's one of the, it's, it's some of the my favorite parts of the Bible because prophets come to the Israelites and say, here's what God wants you to do and you wouldn't believe it, but the Israelites actually do it, right? It's like, the, it's like two out of the five times or something in Israel's history that it, they do it, right? And so it's the prophets Haggai and the prophets Zechariah come and say, hey guys, stop being lazy, right? There's work to do. And so they, people do the work. They get the temple rebuilt. And so they're back in the victorious land, right? They're back in the place of victory, but that comes with a lot of challenges. That comes with a lot of work. That comes with a need for some devotion to actually get the job done to be able to stand in that victory, right? So, so just keep this all in mind. We're kind of building a picture here, right? That the Lord's going to fulfill his word. That opportunity is open for each one of us, but don't make the mistake of assuming that, oh, the opportunity is just going to be a piece of cake, right? Victory implies what? Conflict, right? If it's not, if it's, if there's no conflict, it's not victory, it's gift, okay? The Lord is offering us victory. So we are not called, you don't find victorious Christian living by vegging out, right? You find victorious Christian living by living like there's a battle with a winner and a loser and a victor, Right? And we can talk about all the victory in Jesus. Okay? So there's victory. But victory implies challenge. So these people are in the land with the challenge and they rise to meet the challenge by the power of God and walk in that victory. So as this all happens, okay, Ezra gives us really kind of a two-part story. So the first half is this. And then Ezra comes into the scene in chapter 7. And in chapter 7... The, as the children of Israel would come back, they came back in a couple waves. All right? It wasn't all at once. And so Ezra was not part of the first wave. Um, a more thought-out, articulated pastor could give you much better data on which way this all came together. And, but anyways, Ezra wasn't the first. And so Ezra comes, but Ezra comes now to Jerusalem. And specifically, Ezra comes as a scribe. All right? So in chapter 7... And we'll jump a little bit, but it says, 7 verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra. And then it gives us uh, his 
ancestors, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahidab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So he's given us his lineage to say, look, no, I am qualified. Basically, for what I'm about to do, I am qualified, according to God. This Ezra, in case you're wondering which one, this one went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of, his Lord, of the Lord his God was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. And the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. So we get Ezra in this picture. Now Ezra is, is descended in a straight line from the priest. Okay, uh, He's skilled in the law of Moses. And in case we were wondering what exactly is the law of Moses, it's that which the Lord God of Israel gave. Right? He is skilled in the words that God gave. Right? Isn't that beautiful? You know, in English, we say things so often that we lose their value. So every once in a while, if you can rephrase something or just re-accent those words in a sentence sometimes, it can really make you stop and think. Like the significance, like the phrase, first of all. Right? Do you ever think about what that means? It means first of all that's coming is this right here. There's a lot of power in that, but we just say, first of all, Right? We just make it one word, and it, it kind of loses the effect. But Ezra is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Ezra is skilled in this. Right? Ezra is not just a passive reader. Ezra is not just there for fun. Ezra is not trying to go to the land of promise and ride on somebody else's coattails. Right? He's not riding somebody else's religion. Ezra is here because Ezra is skilled in the word of God. And specifically, okay, as so we read the first nine verses, now let's look at verse 10. And verse 10 is really, if we want a summary of the book of Ezra, this is it right here. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances to Israel. So think about that for a second. Ezra had devoted his life to three things. To study the word of God, to practice the word of God, and to teach the word of God. Okay? So Ezra is going to now talk about, okay, the people had been walking in victory. They had some challenges. Now they got through those. As Ezra comes back, people are walking in more challenges that are more uh, spiritually significant. Okay? And Ezra is going to be the guy to come and really shake them out of it. And the qualifications that Ezra has to give him the authority to help people enter into that victorious life are that he is, he's done three things, right? He's studied the word, he's practicing the word, and he's teaching the word. That's who Ezra is, right? We, Ezra doesn't tell us too much about himself. He tells us he's a scribe. Okay, you read the detail he puts in. We can tell he's fairly detail-oriented. But when Ezra gives his summary, it's this right here, right? He's the guy who could study, practice, and teach the Word of God. And if we want to live that victorious Christian life, 
right? Whether we're at our phase in our life when we're like Joshua crossing into that for the very first time, or whether we're like the children of Israel coming back to that after a period away from it, if we want to walk in the victory, if we want to have that kind of authority that Ezra is going to carry here in Jerusalem to really deal with sin, to encourage people, to, to watch, to situate things such that the Lord can really move in the hearts of people, there's really only three steps, right? You do not need 12 points. Three steps. Study the Word of God. Do the Word of God. And teach the Word of God. Right? And that doesn't mean that everybody needs to get a doctorate in biblical studies. In fact, some people would argue with some legitimacy that that might actually not be that effective of a means of studying the words of, Word of God. Okay? This doesn't mean you have to fulfill everything that the Word of God says perfectly every time or else you are disqualified. Because there's none righteous. Right? Not one. This does not mean you have to be a pastor. Right? It does not mean you have to be a speaker or an orator or anything else. Right? But any one of us can study the Word of God. Any one of us. We talked about, I think it was when we were in Judges. You know, the people had as much victory as they expected to have. And in our lives, it's the same thing. It depends. what We'll get what we expect to get out of our relationship with the Lord. Right? And we, we keep coming to this theme in the Old Testament this year. And if we want to study the Word of God, like we expect it to say something to us, then it's going to say something to us. If we want to practice the Word of God, like we believe that it has power to minister to our lives, and the, the Spirit of God has the power to equip us to walk in victory. Not to walk perfectly, but to walk in victory. If we want to live like that, then we'll get the privilege of living like that. If we want to teach the Word like that, if we want to have the word inside of us, such that at any point in time when someone asks us a question, we can not use the phrase, well, I feel like this. And instead of saying, well, you know what? The word of God actually says something. Right? And if we can, and all of a sudden now, when we are talking to people and we're making judgment calls, we're giving opinions or takes, we're not giving thoughts. We're not giving feelings. Right? Don't, don't ever tell somebody that, you're defining what they ought to do based off of your feelings, right? We can give them the word of God and say, well, you know what? The Bible has something to say like that. And if we expect to teach like that, right? Not because we're so awesome, right? But if we expect to teach because we expect the same God who wrote the scriptures and the same God who preserved the scriptures and the same God who's speaking through the scriptures today, if we expect him to still be working through the scriptures, then we can expect him to speak through us with power. And he will, right? So victorious living is all about victorious living in Christ, right? It's about victorious living by the word of God. Ezra did not go back to Israel and walk victoriously and lead well because he was a great speaker. He didn't do it because he had great feelings or great thoughts or great insights or great economic advice. Ezra knew the word of God. And the word of God was sufficient to transform the people of Israel, right? For each one of us, the word of God can do the same thing. And to, just to tie it in a little bit, if we want to look at the New Testament and say, okay, well, does the New Testament address this at all? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, it does. Dad talked about this uh, just a little bit on Sunday. Um, if you want to talk about the word of God 
And these three things that Ezra's going to talk about. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell. Right? That's part one. That's what Ezra's doing. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul was talking to Pastor Timothy, and he says, Don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness, but rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So Paul says, Hey, you be an example. Your age does not matter. <clears throat> but you can be an example of the Word of God. And until I show up, you can teach the Word of God. Right? He doesn't say you need brilliant insights. He says give attention to public reading of Scripture. So it's okay sometimes to just open up the Bible and read what it says to somebody. Right? Just give attention to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, to doctrine. Last verse for the night, I think, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We read 1 Timothy 4. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is Paul's very last letter before he gets his head chopped off for believing this, right? So Paul writes 2 Timothy with a sense of urgency and a sense of, uh, okay, I've got a bullet-pointed message to get out, right? And I want to make sure that this is straightforward and easy to understand. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Right? Paul is not working in ambiguity here. Right? This is, this is straight up stuff. Right? And anybody can look at this and say, I wonder what that means. <laughs> preach the word. You know, if we took the uh, grammar and restructured the Greek... Could mean word the preach, but I think preach the word is still probably the most accurate way to read this, right? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, right? Do you see what Paul is saying? As Paul is trying to pass on truth and pass on what the Spirit is telling him to the church as a whole and then to Timothy in those last two verses, right? What is Paul saying? He's saying, study the word of God, practice the word of God, and teach the Word of God. Right? That's really all there is to it. Right? We have, we have just the, such an amazing, amazing gift right here. Right? The Lord has written us. Right? The Gospel of John, Jesus keeps talking about being sent. Right? He's sent from the Father. And he's sent from the Father to bring us salvation. Right? Well, in a very similar way, the Word of God has been sent. It has been gifted to us. We are the heirs of a legacy. Right? We are the children of men and women who lived and died to get this book in English. Right? And so we have the, so we can have that opportunity to choose, no matter where we are at, to go to the victorious Christian life. Each and every one of us. Right? So as we're looking ahead this week, we're going to be reading Nehemiah and Esther and Job. Don't, don't, please do not 
read them just to get through them and say you did it, right? Read it expectantly, right? Expect God to speak in your life. Expect God to want to do something in your heart, right? Expect God to show up. And then we can come back next week on Wednesday and we can all tell each other what God did, right? We can testify to each other how God has been faithful. So let's, let's approach the word like that. Let's approach life. Let's study the word. Let's practice the word. Let's teach the word, all right? So God, we just thank you uh, for, for the glorious gift of your word. We pray that we would never lose our awe at, at just all that it contains, that your word is life, God. You're, you're giving us life, and we are thankful. God, we want to praise you, <clears throat> not just in our songs, but we want to praise you by how we approach your word. We want to praise you with the respect we give to it, with the expectation that we show up to it with. So God, I pray that, <clears throat> that you would just fill each of our hearts with a hunger for more of your word, that we would want to hear your voice, that we would want to know what you're saying to us, that we would want to see you move in our lives. And we just ask all this in Jesus' name, God, and we want to give you all of our praise and our honor and our glory. So just have your way with us, God. Amen.